Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, this week, notably, Governor Newsom signed his first budget. And one of the most interesting things in the budget, at least to us, was the nearly $100 million he had called for to encourage doctors and other health professionals to screen children and adults for what are called adverse childhood experiences. This is a tangible consequence of Newsom's emphasis on early childhood and his appointment of San Francisco pediatrician Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris as the state's first Surgeon General. Dr. Burke-Harris has done groundbreaking work in studying the debilitating impact that traumatic experiences have on young children. This week, Ed Source reporter Zadie Stavely wrote at some length about this proposal for screening kids for trauma. So we're happy to have Zadie with us in the studio. Zadie, tell us, what was the thinking behind this? Why did Governor Newsom feel that this is so important to expand across the state? Well, there's a lot of research, Lewis, that shows that these adverse childhood experiences, like being separated from a parent due to immigration or foster care or for some other reason, living with a parent who is depressed or has another mental health illness, having experienced abuse or seeing a parent experience abuse, and several other experiences, those are really linked to a number of chronic illnesses, that it really raises your risk as an adult for cancer, heart disease, depression, and several other diseases. Give us an example of some of the questions kids would be asked. So the questions on the survey for children are actually questions for a parent or caregiver who goes to a doctor's appointment with their child. Oh, so not you don't ask the kid then? No, but there are questions for teenagers directly and then questions for a parent or caregiver about what their child has experienced. So one of them says, has your child ever lived with a parent who experienced a mental health illness such as depression? There's another question that says, has your child ever experienced a separation from a parent or caregiver, including, for example, for foster care or immigration, like the children that we're seeing separated at the border. There's a lot more kids now experiencing precisely that. Right. Then there are also questions regarding abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, or whether a child has experienced another adult abusing, whether it's emotionally or verbally, a parent or caregiver. So we talked about long-term health impacts, certainly asthma is one, but it also could explain behavior issues in school, right? Surely. I spoke with some people from the School-Based Health Alliance, which I think you're going to be speaking with someone as well. And she told me that these are the kinds of things that also can cause children to either withdraw in the classroom or to lash out or have rages, and that it's helpful for teachers to understand where the children are coming from. Just a quick question before we let you go, Zadie. Is this going to be mandated by the state now? It is not mandated. It is not required. But providers who treat Medi-Cal patients will be able to get $29 for each trauma screening that they do. And before this was implemented, the trauma screenings were kind of just part of a preventive health screening. And there's also money for training, right? There's also $50 million in the budget for training providers on how to administer and how to treat patients after they receive their score. Okay. Well, thank you, Zadie Stavely. Thanks for looking into this issue. And I'm sure you'll be staying on top of this because this hasn't gone into effect yet. When actually does it go into effect? The Department of Healthcare Services expects it to go into effect January 1st, 2020. Great. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. To better understand how the screenings will work and why they're so important, we have on the line Dr. Jonathan Goldfinger, 
Chief Medical Officer of the Center for Youth Wellness. That's the San Francisco-based organization founded by Dr. Burke Harris, who, as we mentioned, is now California's Surgeon General. Welcome, Dr. Goldfinger. Thank you. Appreciate being here. So I just wanted to ask you, uh, these screenings for trauma, what is the purpose of doing it? Once you've actually found out whether there is a high degree of trauma or not, what kinds of actions would you take to respond to that? That's a great question. We've known for a long time in healthcare that identifying the source or the multiple risk factors that lead to disease and mental health challenges is critical to our ability to effectively treat them. And there's over 20 years of data indicating that adverse childhood experiences lead to toxic stress, a dysregulation of our body's neurological, inflammatory, hormonal immune systems, and that that toxic stress, that dysregulation likely impacts our bodies, our brains from as early as being a fetus and early in childhood. And we know that seven of the 10 leading causes of death in America, a large portion of those can be attributed to adverse childhood experiences. For example, the risk from adverse childhood experiences on your cardiovascular and other health outcomes may actually outweigh the risks of smoking. Well, we've invested a ton of money in counseling adults and others in society to avoid cigarettes. Now we know that providers can actually use this information to begin to prevent and mitigate the effects of adverse childhood experiences, what we call ACEs, and toxic stress. Some of these experiences happen so early. What can be done to mitigate or undo the effects of that? So we always want to take a life course approach and recognize that it really depends at what point in the circle of life we're trying to intervene upon. But anyone from family practices to obstetric providers to pediatric professionals can understand the underlying risk factors for uh, really entrenched physical health challenges as well as behavioral and mental health challenges. And so providers can both take a physiologic, a biological lens to think about disease differently, to treat disease differently, as well as ensure that patients, children, and families who have experienced childhood trauma and other forms of adversity would be connected to resources for mental health services and other forms of addressing essential needs, which can also be traumatic, such as inadequate access to food or housing. I'm assuming that some parents may not, in fact, know that their children are exposed to adverse childhood experiences. They may not know that they're involved in creating them or that they have an impact. Am I right here? That is absolutely right. That's why this movement across the nation and the world is so critical to ensure that parents are aware of the risks of childhood adversity and the original work on adversity included common things like parental mental illness. We know there's high rates of uh, maternal depression in America and depression among men as well and other caregivers and even divorce as a risk factor. So if parents are aware that this can get under their child's skin, 
then they can also be given from their providers messages of hope to focus on their inherent strengths as human beings, as parents who care so much for their children, to be that buffering, nurturing caregiver that a child experiencing adversity and trauma needs to build resilience and prevent or mitigate the toxic effects on the brain and body. And I'm assuming that you can make the connection for parents between a child's health problems or behavioral issues and, in fact, toxic stress that they didn't know before. Yes. I'll never forget a family that had two children with significant inattention and hyperactivity. And our teams had these children on stimulants as early as two to three years old. And when the mother would come in and we could tell emotionally she wasn't doing well, we screened and recognized she had depression, there's the first ACE. By ACE, you mean adverse child experiences, right, Dr. Goldfinger? Yes. We asked her about it. It was based on her experience of domestic violence. That's the second ACE. And that her husband had recently been deported. That separation of the children from their father, the third ACE. These children already have a significant dose of toxicity in their neurological, immunological, hormonal response to stress that is probably an underlying risk factor that we would have missed if we hadn't asked this mother about what was going on in the home and reflected as human beings that we recognize that she's struggling. And, and that's the power of screening for ACEs and other childhood adversities. We're talking with Dr. Jonathan Goldfinger, Chief Medical Officer of the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco. And with these new screenings that the state now is putting in quite a lot of money to encourage physicians and others to administer, how does what's happening here compare to what other states or other countries are doing? I mean, are we ahead of the pack now? Or are we way behind? Or, or where, where do we stand? So California is ahead of the pack, but thankfully for children in other states, there are other states not far behind. A recent scan by the National Conference of State Legislatures found almost 40 bills in 18 states, specifically including language on ACEs, which is a dramatic increase from just a year ago. So there's a, a number of states really engaged in this, and we anticipate as California goes, so will hopefully much of the nation. And we're very proud of CYW's influence, Dr. Burke Harris' influence, uh, of course, in, in how this is unfolding, as well as the Governor Gavin Newsom's commitment to ensuring that universal identification and intervention regarding childhood adversity and trauma become a norm in California. And of course, when you said CYW, right? Center for Youth Wellness? Yes. Where you work and Dr. Burke Harris was the founder of. Just finally, a, a quick question. With this money now that's on the table to reimburse physicians and others for administering these screenings, do you think there's going to be a lot of cooperation? Do you think we'll see many more of them? Or are, is the health sector going to have to be nudged to do it? While I can't predict the future, my experience has been that physicians, primary care professionals especially, and other healthcare staff want to do what's in the patient's best interest. This is an issue of whether they have the knowledge and the understanding that childhood 
adversity has affected the biology as well as the behavior of their patients and that they can do something about it. But in our experience at CYW, in my experience in other work, almost universally, once they understand the science, really solid science pointing to the need to identify childhood adversity early and intervene, they invariably support it. The real question, which thankfully the state of California has answered the call, has been, do they have sufficient opportunity to get trained? And so in the most recent budget revisions, uh, there's about $60 million uh, for training providers across the state of California in ACEs screening or trauma screening implementation. And that's going to be a critical piece of the puzzle. It's not enough to increase their education, their awareness. In order to gain their buy-in, we have to ensure that they understand how this can fit into their natural workflow, into their typical primary care visits. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Dr. Jonathan Goldfinger, Chief Medical Officer of the Center for Youth Wellness. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you all. Really appreciate the opportunity, and thank you for focusing on this critical healthcare issue. It turns out that at least some health clinics and schools have been screening students for trauma for a number of years. To talk about that, we're pleased to have with us Lisa Eisenberg from the California School-Based Health Alliance, which represents school health clinics. Now, Lisa, that alliance, you're an alliance of health clinics in schools around the state. Is that correct? That's correct, in part. I think we we are an organization that advocates for school-based health across California, and we are the network of the 268 school-based health centers in California. Okay, so we're talking today about trauma screenings. Your organization, how are you involved with that issue? Our school-based health centers have acknowledged and identified trauma experiences as hugely impactful for the students and communities they serve. So a lot of our school-based health centers have been incorporating trauma-informed practices and trauma-informed screenings as a part of their clinic practices for a number of years. So they've been doing that independent of the state law? and They have. I think in very similar to how pediatricians and nurse practitioners might be incorporating that into their practice across the state in pockets of very good practices. So how does it actually work? How do you administer these surveys? The practice varies across our school-based health centers. Some school-based health centers will have a student fill out a questionnaire along with other intake questionnaires as part of a student's check-in with the clinic. Some of our school-based health centers incorporate questionnaires around trauma experiences as part of a mental health visit, as part of a well-child visit, and those responses to a questionnaire are reviewed with the provider, whether it's a nurse practitioner, whether it's a clinical social worker. It looks very different. So this is a standardized questionnaire that the state is preparing, and you would ask that, and how would it be used? The responses would be used either as part of a brief intervention in a clinical visit. So maybe the nurse practitioner says, I asked you these questions because they are pertinent to your overall health history. I care about your health. I care about you. I'm going to incorporate this information into our treatment going forward. Oftentimes, depending on the responses, that can be a warm referral to a mental health provider. Maybe the clinician says, let me bring you down the hall. I'd like you to meet our clinical social worker who can set up a time to chat with you. 
We have some really great school-based health centers that are doing some unique interventions where they are enrolling students into peer-to-peer groups where they engage young men of color in healing practices and thinking about their traumatic experiences. So I think that that is actually some of the unique experiences that our school-based health centers are bringing to this work is how you are engaging healing into information that you're gleaning from these screens. We're talking with Lisa Eisenberg, who is policy director for the California School-Based Health Alliance. So you've been administering these trauma screenings for a couple of years. Have you found them to be useful? Does it help working with these kids? And a lot of these kids are in schools, which are in neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods, possibly a lot of violence in those neighborhoods. So these are kids who may be at greatest risk for trauma. So our school-based health centers are integrated into the school community. They are getting referrals from teachers, from school nurses, from principals. And so I think what our school-based health centers are learning from the screens is not surprising to them. They understand that a lot of their students have had traumatic experiences. And I think what screening is showing our school-based health centers is the prevalence of it and, and also providing a mechanism by which you can screen students and engage them in treatment. And I think our our school-based health centers are thinking very expansively about what that treatment and how you create environments in that school-based health center that can be healing and not re-traumatizing. And I think that that is what is unique about the school-based health center practices. So there's a lot of attention now, as you know, towards chronic absenteeism rates and suspension rates. Can the information from the questionnaire inform school practices, or is it separate because of privacy and therefore the information can't be shared? The information that's gleaned from the screenings is protected by privacy. So I think it's unlikely to share specific student information with school communities. I do think we know that untreated trauma manifests in educational outcomes that our schools are really interested in. Um, We know that it increases absence, it increases chronic absenteeism, untreated trauma increases behavior disruptions and impacts the ability for students to create healthy relationships with themselves. So to the extent that screening can be linked to treatment for those traumatic experiences or a, a way to manage those traumatic experiences, that will benefit our school communities. Last question. You've already been doing these screenings. Now the state has this law where they will reimburse health professionals for the screenings, $29, not a huge amount, and also do training to help them do it. How will this help you if you're already doing it already? That's a great question. We're excited to learn and find out. Our school-based health centers have a lot to share with the healthcare community because we've been doing some of this work for a while. So we're excited to partner and expand what we have learned with our school-based health centers. I think very specifically, some of our school-based health centers would benefit from the enhanced reimbursement. And I think an incentive to use a tool will be really beneficial. Okay, terrific. We've been talking with Lisa Eisenberg, who is Policy Director for the California School-Based Health Alliance. Thanks for talking with us and love to talk with you after this law goes into effect and see how it is affecting the landscape. I look forward to it. Of course, there was a lot more in the budget that Governor Newsom signed this week. One other item was a $10 million line item for doing something that Governor Brown resisted for quite a few years, setting up a longitudinal data system to track children from early childhood all the way into the workforce. 
Yes, it's called the cradle-to-career data system, and it's consistent with the governor's pledge to set up a system that starts in infancy and goes to the workplace. In California, most states already have what's called a longitudinal data system, meaning it links various databases that you have one for K-12, you have one for various systems in higher ed, and you gathering data for early childhood, and now we'll be able to link those systems and answer questions that we couldn't do before. Like what? Like what kinds of questions, John? For example, which programs in K-12 better prepare students for the uh, California State University and University of California, or which career technical education programs lead to better jobs later on and certificates and badges in certain professions? We don't know these answers yet. And ideally, we might even have answers to, like, if you do these developmental screenings, for example, did that pay off? Exactly. Or what kind of preschool a kid attended, whether that translated into greater success later on. We just haven't been able to answer those questions. Exactly. Or how well does K-12 prepare students for University of California and California State University? Which programs in particular need remediation or which districts are doing really innovative things? And, of course, the data system won't instantaneously give us answers to all of these, but it certainly will be a goldmine for researchers to be able to really analyze what has worked and what hasn't worked. And eventually, perhaps parents, too, who want to know what school they would like to send their children to based on the results of certain programs. Uh, Yeah, super interesting. And also notable is that this is really on a fast track to get done after really being held up by Jerry Brown's just skepticism about collecting data, which he felt just didn't really speak to what goes on in the classroom. Jerry Brown's emphasis is what he called on the meeting between students and teachers. And uh, the rest, he felt, was sort of bureaucratic requirements that didn't really lead to anything. Well, most people disagree with him that that's where it should end, that you need to know what the consequences and the results are as well. Anyway, it's, it's been on a wish list for a decade, and now it is, as you say, a fast track. By January 2021, the legislature will be given a report which sort of answers all the fundamental questions about how this system will work, who will operate it, how will privacy work, how will researchers get access to these questions, what's the data in addition that we want to collect. All these are very important questions and they're not easy to solve. And this is an example of where electing a governor or any elected official does make a difference. Jerry Brown and Newsom agree on so many things But this is one tangible area where they disagreed. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.